He grew up in one of the toughest sections of one of America's most dangerous cities. He's a former Las Vegas Metro police officer, a retired ATF agent, and an author of multiple books. And he's here to talk about his experience on scene and afterwards at one of the most disastrous hotel fires in American history. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend, and if you're able, you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from one of my favorite parts of the United States, Tucson, Arizona, we have Mark Russin on the phone. Mark is a former Las Vegas Metro police officer, a retired ATF agent. He's also an author of multiple books, one of which is Metro Sin City Chronicles. We'll talk about that more Mark, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Hey, thank you, John Jay. Pleasure. It's a good thing to have you here. You come highly recommended. You've got such a great backstory. Be honest with you, one of the things, one of the purposes of the Law Enforcement Today show, two main purposes. One is to give a glimpse behind the badge, why officers do what they do, what happens on scene. And we're going to talk about your experiences at the MGM Grand Fire. And the other one is also to talk about how people are law enforcement officers family members spouses friends other first responders military veterans victims of crime go through traumatic incidents and how they reclaim their lives and build their lives afterwards and your story kind of covers both doesn't it uh it does i've been involved in you know several traumatic experiences as a first responder in las vegas obviously and then uh working the strip and then, uh, like you said, the MGM Grand Fire, which I pulled eighty-seven, helped pull eighty-seven bodies out of that fire back in nineteen eighty, along with uh, you know being shot at and almost being knifed, and, and you name it—all the things that come with uh, being a police officer in a vibrant city like Las Vegas and working the strip. So, and then uh, I followed that up after four years in uniform to be a ATF agent, and I was involved in several different cases and. <laughs> Uh, different uh, situations there in 24-year career before I retired in 07. So, yeah, I got a lot to talk about. Yeah, the ATF gig is not an easy desk gig. It might be for some people, but I, I worked with ATF agents on the streets. Them and the DEA, they were on the streets all the time. Yeah, we uh, we pride ourselves on standing shoulder to shoulder with the state and local police officers, and uh, you know we're not like the FBI, where we're, we we feel we're above the, the state and locals. We're we're right in there with you. We get in the right in the hole at the bombing scenes and the arsons, and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you in your investigative process, and we we won't let you hold a leaky bag once we leave town. So we're. We're kind of on the team with you, and that's a good reputation to have. And I think, I think it's because a lot of our uh, agents were former police officers, and, and they know where the rubber meets the road. And uh, 
they understand the, the, the situation totally. So and that's why are, I think it's like that. You're 100% correct. That's always been my opinion of GEA and ATF. And we've had many of both on the show. Before we get into the MGM Grand, we want to talk a little bit about Mark's childhood because it's important and it kind of contradicts a lot of what you hear, especially in Hollywood. But a lot of ATF agents, a lot of DE agents are severely injured in line of duty. They, they work hazardous situations. And we all know city cops, and not just city. I had that mistaken idea in my head that we had it rough in a city and the county guys, so I say guys, men and women, they had it easy. They didn't. There's a lot less of them and they had to do everything. So they encountered as much stuff, maybe not as frequently, but it was also very, very dangerous for them as well. Well, sure, because they have less backup. I mean, if you're in a city, major city, you know, you can call a, a 444 in your radio and you got 25 cops rolling your way. But if you're out in a remote area, you're by yourself and you've got to do what you got to do. And uh, it could be it could be a little dicey at times, you know, especially when you're when you're overpowered by two, two people or three or what have you. So, yeah, that's always an issue. And uh, you wish you could have some help you know, the cavalry coming a little bit quicker when you're out there in the remote areas. But uh, that's uh, that's the difference between the sheriff's department and a lot of places and, and the local PDs. Absolutely. And for them, backups a long ways away many, many times. I want to go back to your childhood. You grew up in one of the toughest areas of one of America's roughest cities. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago on the south side, right near Midway Airport. And um, I, I tell in my book about my first encounter with the Chicago Police Department, where I was the victim of a of a robbery, attempt robbery, where I was grabbed at my paper route when I was 11 by a man and a, and, a, and a mech guy that came at me with a knife to try and steal my $73 of hard-earned money that I had, you know, earned on my paper route. And... Uh, the light went off in my head, and it, I snapped, and I fought both of these guys off. And it, it, I tell the story about that, and the police responded, and I got to ride in a squad car to go look for these two assailants. And uh, obviously, they were long gone, but uh, that was my first brush with the police, and I thought it was cool. And, and back then, I was 11. It was 1966. And, you know, Adam 12 was on TV and Dragnet and uh, all those cool cop shows that I used to watch and was intrigued by so that kind of started the fire in me to to get me uh interested in law enforcement along with playing hockey as a kid and being a sports nut from chicago so uh that's that's kind of how i started and uh i uh i followed my 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 dream to through college when i went to western illinois and i majored in law enforcement administration and then uh, when I got out of school, uh, you know, in 77, there was it was a freeze on hiring at the federal level with uh, President Carter just coming in, in, into uh, the presidency. And uh, I ended up uh, taking a gambling junket to Vegas and and working out to get on the police department out in Las Vegas, which was a which was a good move. And. Uh, an exciting move for me at that time. So that and, was and my kind of a, real. a natural move because Hollywood's correct, and quite often or not, there was a heavy involvement of the Chicago mob in the gambling facilities in Vegas. So for you going down there is not a big stretch. That's true. In fact, uh, when I first got there, a lot of people were looking at me with a, a little bit of a hairy eyeball because uh, they didn't know if I was, uh, you know, connected or what, uh, being on the police department coming from Chicago with Tony Spilatro back in those days, uh, 
you know, running running the crime syndicate out of Chicago and Vegas, like you like you said. And uh, the movie Casino, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head. I was working the strip those nights when all that stuff happened in the movie, if you recall. And uh, the whole in the wall gang and that whole crew was from Chicago. So, yeah, it was a Chicago connection, really deep. And then when Spalacho got whacked, uh, you know, like in the mid '80s, then uh, Las Vegas changed to more of a corporate entity, and uh, and those old places got knocked down, and uh, corporate corporate took over. So all I've ever known is the the corporate era of Las Vegas. I've only been there once, and I, I want to take my wife there again. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big gambler. I like playing poker with people I know. The social aspect of it, and yeah, the gambling part is fine, but it's about the nightlife there, the restaurants, the shows, everything you want is available in Las Vegas. And you're absolutely right about the movie Casino. It's one of the good ones about the mob based out of Chicago and their influence in Las Vegas. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com, and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today show is brought to you by Switched On Life. Train the mind and the body will follow. In his riveting debut memoir, Switched On, The Heart and Mind of a Special Agent, Eric Caron provides a true glimpse into the making of a special agent and life behind the badge. Get more details about the book, the podcast, and more at switchedonlife.com. That's switchedonlife.com. Return our conversation with Mark Russin on the Law Enforcement Today Show, originally from Chicago. He is a former Las Vegas Metro Police, retired ATF, author of, I think, two books, one of which is called Metro Sin City Chronicles. Do a search on Amazon, you'll find it. And we're going to talk about that because that book really talks about your formative years in Chicago and then your street cop days in Las Vegas. Am I correct? Absolutely. That's what it's all about up until uh, I leave Las Vegas to become an ATF agent. So you said earlier in the conversation, growing up in Chicago, you got robbed and that kind of inspired you to, to want to pursue a career in law enforcement and of course the old tv shows at the time adam 12 dragnet all those i'm sure the old joseph wambob movies and, and television shows influenced you as well because they did me made you decide that was a career choice you wanted and you went on a junket a trip to vegas and decided hey i'm going to start a job in law enforcement here how did that happen 
Well, what happened was in 78, uh, I was working as a bouncer in a uh, nightclub. It was a mobbed-up nightclub in Chicago. And what happened was uh, one of the guys that was frequent in the joint came in, and he was a Chicago fireman going through a divorce, and he said he had a, a free ticket to go to Vegas and uh, stay at the MGM Grand. And uh, I jumped at it because I'd never been to Vegas at the, at the time. And when when, I, when we got there, we went to the Riviera to play blackjack, and I ended up hitting it off with one of the blackjack dealers, this cute little Italian girl. And one thing led to another, and we went out for drinks, and uh, she told me that the police department was hiring there. So I ended up sending her my uh my address and everything, giving her my address, and uh, I was able to contact the police department, send them my resume and everything, and go out there for the testing and and all that stuff. And uh, it was it was a good feeling to go out there because I had my degree and I wanted to be a cop so bad, and and I really wanted to get on Chicago Police Department. So uh, I ended up going to Vegas, and uh, I figured that I could work uniform for a while, and then if the feds ever started hiring again, I had my my site set on ATF once they started hiring again. So that's kind of how it all started. Earlier in the conversation, you said that when you got to Vegas and you were working a street, you're working a strip area, and it was a time when Vegas was starting to transition from the mob influence, Chicago mob influence, to the more corporate influence. But people looked at you kind of like with the, we call it the stink eye. They like we're not quite sure about this guy. Where does he fit in the, in the picture? Yeah, exactly. It was the hairy eyeball we called it in Chicago. But anyway, yeah, same thing. People weren't weren't sure about my motives, and uh, I was pure as can be. You know, I just was a, a young kid wanting to be a cop, and it was kind of funny because uh, I went through a couple things, and I I spell out in the book how they how they kind of harassed me a little bit to check me and to and to see if I was. Uh, you know, uh, on the up and up, so to speak. And uh, I passed the test with flying colors. And, uh, you know, I did I did gain some respect along the way. But, yeah, they were they were unfair to me a little bit, uh, trying to set me up and, and trying to get weed me out, so to speak. And uh, I, I passed all the tests, and uh, then it finally dawned on them that I was the real deal, and uh, I was there to, to do a job and, and not uh, a plant or not a, anything else, so. Now, I'm not a historian, and I don't know Vegas history all that well, but I do know that right now, and for the last many years, they have a sterling reputation as a great law enforcement agency. However, around the 70s, there was a lot of problems uh, with corruption and other things. Did you see any of that? Not really. Uh, they incorporated the city and the and the county into one in 73, and I came on the job in 1980. So... We were on the up and up. I mean, I, I had been, you know, offered bribes and and uh, traffic stops like like Chicago is noted for, and you know, of course, you don't take them, and, and, and you warn the people that that's that this is not, you know, not Chicago or not New York, where uh, that, that that type of you know stuff is prevalent. But no, I I really didn't. We I was proud to be a Las Vegas police officer, and, and I still to this day think it's one of the finest you know, police departments in the country. And like you said, they, they have great training. They have, uh, they're on the up and up and they, they don't, and they run the streets. They don't take any off of anybody. And, uh, it was, it was fun to be a, a Las Vegas police officer. And, uh, I cherished those, those four years and, uh, I learned a lot and, uh, I had a lot of fun. So it was, it was good. It was really good to be a Las Vegas Metro police officer. Earlier you mentioned 1980. I started the 
Baltimore Police Department in October 1980. So I'm a geezer like you in some respects. Yeah. And it was yeah. a different era. And some people, and I just laugh. And, you know, look, if the label fits, I'll wear it. But they consider me, a, you know, a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal when it comes to policing. But that's the way everybody was when I was on the job. So it's, I'm not an oddity. But you mentioned 1980. And in, I believe it was November 1980, the third deadliest hotel fire in the history of the United States took place in Las Vegas. That was at the MGM Grand, and I do remember bits of it because it was a long time ago. You have a different perspective because you were there. I was there, and uh, when the fire broke out in the morning, uh, we were we had just finished doing some raids on the west side of town, and uh, the sergeant, and I, and I note this in a chapter in my book uh, that actually is on Wikipedia as well under the MGM Grand Hotel Fire. If you ever Google that, you'll see the, the story. But, uh, you know, the sergeant stated that the MGM was on fire, and, and we, we thought he was kidding or crazy. And we went, ran to the back of the building, and we looked up, and there was smoke all over the, the strip. And we were told to go home and get some rest because we might be called back that night. And my squad was chosen. Uh, I had a 10 man squad chosen to go into the building and recover dead bodies. So uh, that was that was our our chore for the evening. And, and I go into detail in my story about you know seeing all these dead people lined up in the hallways and, and the looks on their faces and you know when you when you die when you're sucking for air what it looks like on your face and your face actually stays that way. And I and I describe in in detail some of the faces and some of the looks and how that affected me and uh, I was just I was just totally overwhelmed both psychologically and emotionally that Absolutely. evening because I had never never seen anything like that and, never and, and nothing can anything pre- like that nothing can prepare you for that there's nothing in the academy that teaches you the, how to deal with that you, no it, it's it's one of those deals where you and I've never had to do this. I've had my own fair share of traumas, just like other police. And you see things, and you're absolutely right. It's not like Hollywood. It's not like television. It's not like a TV show where someone dies and it looks like they're sleeping. The actor's asleep. It's not like that. It's a horrible thing. And a lot of these images get imprinted on your brain, and it's something you can't really quite get rid of, and they pop up at the weirdest time. We are talking with Mark Russin. He is an author of two books. He's a former Las Vegas Metro police officer, retired ATF agent. When we return to the Law Enforcement Today Show, we're going to talk more about the MGM Grand Fire and his responsibilities and what he and his squad mates did that day. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. 888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-
travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603 That's 800-451-8603 This is the Law Enforcement Aid Show. We are turning our conversation with Mark Russin, a retired ATF agent, former Las Vegas Metro police officer, originally from Chicago, author of two books. We'll talk about his books in a moment. Before we went to break, you started talking about November 21st, 1980, the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino Fire. Uh, I believe it was somewhere between, eight, was it 85 or 87 people died that day? 87 people when it all when it was all ended. It, uh, yeah, 87 was the number. And when you got there earlier in the day, they sent you home and said, be prepared because you have to deal with this later on. Is that correct? Yeah, they sent us home to get some rest because we just worked some some warrants. We did our 10-hour shift on the west side of town. So when we got there, the fire actually broke out around 7.05 in the morning, and uh, we were just getting off shift. So we went home to sleep, and then uh, we got called back at 3 o'clock to work a double that afternoon. So by the time my squad all you know got back, we were... We were dealing with known deaths, you know, and people jumpers and uh, helicopter rooftop saves and stuff like that. But the people that were still in the building were all presumed dead because obviously they would have got out. Uh, they would have been dead of smoke inhalation up the top floors of the building, which which they were. And uh, my squad was chosen to go in with an axe and a, and a uh, flashlight because it was all pitch black in there and, and go in and break down doors and start pulling pulling bodies out of the rooms and start to, uh, you know, find identification and, and, and personal belongings and, and tag them with, uh, with the right people so that uh, we could put them in the bags and take them to the, back to the helicopter from the rooftop and then uh, go to the morgue to, to sort it out. And uh, that's what my uh, squad was doing. And it, it was amazing. And in, in, in the story, I, I say when we lifted off via helicopter from from the east lot of the of the blackened out MGM, when we got to the top, it looked like a burnt out tenement in the middle of a large carnival, which is what it looked like to me from the from the top. And uh, when we landed on the rooftop, you know, uh, I was told that they needed seven gurneys down on the 19th floor and i wasn't even sure how far that was uh but i started walking and i was and when when i got to the 19th floor i started to walk over the seven bodies that were laying in the hallway and trying not to trip over them as i was carrying a gurney to the staging area which was at the elevator so then we had to start to you know the the uh the process of of what we called tagging and bagging the dead bodies and I, I saw this one lady who was looked like my mom actually and my mom was back in Chicago at the time and she had this look of horror on her face and she had glasses on and and her glass was was broken like a spider web one of the lenses and uh I you know it just hit me and I and I and I was like this is somebody's mom you know back somewhere in this country that I'm now confirming the death and it just it overwhelmed me for a moment. I had to take a I had to take a minute because I I almost broke down, you know, because like I said, you identify, you try not to, 
but you can't help it. And, and it's amazing how you're overcome by the emotion at the moment and, and an overload. It's emotional overload. It's the best way I could explain it. And you have all these people lined up and they're all dead. And you know, they were all partying and having a good time and they were laying in their bed. And all of a sudden the, the, you know, the, the alarm went off or, or what have you. And they realized that they were in trouble and they tried to get out and they tried to get to the rooftop and they were overcome by smoke and they died in their hotel rooms. And, and, uh, the look of horror on their face was just amazing. And I, and I also had one guy who, uh, had the presence of mind and, and I say in his dying mind's frenzy, he actually took his bed sheets off the bed and tied them end to end thinking that he's going to do an escape road. Now this guy was on like the 20th floor and he's going to, you know, basically shimmy down to the escape rope that he's made. He's got the, the bed sheets tied together. He's got the uh, pillowcases tied together and he's got them clenched in his fist. And I, I called it his escape road. He threw a chair through the window and he was getting ready to shimmy down, you know, from, from floor to floor thinking he could get out that way. And he died right inside of his room there with this look of horror on his face. And I'll never forget that. And he was, he was 55 years old. And that those things stick with you, and uh, you know, you talk about what you what you see, you can't unsee, and that's exactly. the, that's the unfortunate part about it. And uh, you know, to this day, I mean, I had night sweats and and daydreams or daymares, what we call them, and and you name it, uh, for years after that. And to this day, I around November of every year, I say a prayer and I I get back on uh, you know Google and I and I do the MGM Grand Fire almost like as a as a memento to me as uh, you know to to remember where I was and I say a prayer for the families of the deceased. So one of the things that really strikes me about this, and there's many things that that are overwhelming about it is i can't imagine going home and trying to rest knowing what i had to face when i came in that evening or that afternoon you you and your squad knew what was ahead of you i mean you may not have known how advanced the crime scene for lack of better words again was or how many dead people there were but you knew it was going to be bad oh yeah Oh yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and uh, you know, there was no laughter. There was there was no. It wasn't fun. You know, we were on the helicopter. Uh, you know, three of us together, and and uh, the helicopters were lifting us off. And no, we were we were dead serious. We knew what we were up against, and uh, it wasn't fun. I call it the night from hell or the twilight zone night. You know, and that's kind of like what I thought when I looked down the hallway and I saw all these dead bodies and you know all these flashlights and 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 what have you lighting up the the hallway, uh, the, the whole hotel was blacked out. And uh, I, I want to tell you about one other uh, couple that uh, I ended up going up to about the 24th floor. And uh, when I broke the door down, the safety latch was on it, which which is a bad sign because, you know, there's either somebody still inside or they jumped out the window to their death. You know, and either way, it's, it's not good. So I... I actually broke down the, the door through the safety latch and I found a couple in their twenties embraced in bed. They were still sleeping in bed. And I, and I saw her gown at the end of the bed and I saw this picture of this beautiful young couple uh, on a table and uh, a bouquet of red roses that were soot covered red roses. Uh, that's how bad the smoke was up on, up on the 20, 20th floor, 23rd floor. And, uh, 
I, I, I stopped for a moment because I knew I was going to have to break these two people apart and put them in body bags. And it was so emotional for me that I picked up their picture and I broke down. I started to cry and I couldn't stop. I, I just started to cry and I, I, I was just totally overloaded with emotion. And I, I knew their family was back east somewhere hoping that they were okay because you have to understand, I mean, this is, this is like 15 hours after the fire broke out. It made national news. Everybody knows what's going on. And they haven't heard from their loved ones yet. And here I am, Officer Russin, walking into their room, and I'm confirming, you know, the deaths of their, of their kids, you know. And it just, took me, it just took me so emotional. It got me so emotional that uh, I broke down. And the funny thing about it, well, not funny, but the sad thing about it was, you know, I had to be macho. I couldn't let my partner see me cry. You know, you can't right. do that. You can't break down on the job and, and, and get in a fetal position in the corner. You got a job to do. So I had to suck it up and, and try and, uh, you know, compose myself as I'm breaking these two people apart, putting them in, in bags. And I even say, I wish I had one great big body bag to put them both in it together because that's where they belonged, you know, and it was emotional as you're absolutely I, right about the we we policed in an environment i say we me and you a lot of other people and some still today where the mentality was suck it up buttercup you, you, if you're gonna cry you cry in your patrol car when your job is done and quite often it was while heading to another call we're gonna return to our conversation with mark russin about the mgm grand fire the day and the long-term effects. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T radio show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Current conversation with Mark Russin calling us from Tucson, Arizona. Mark is a very interesting personality. First of all, he's from Chicago originally. And when you hear Mark talk, I should say, when I listen to Mark talk, he's using terms like whacked and working in a mobbed up place as a bouncer when he's a kid and all that stuff. And I get an image in my mind of what Hollywood puts out there. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it happens. And then you were Las Vegas Metro Police for a few years. And early on in the job, on November, I believe, 21st, 1980, you're dispatched to the MGM Grand Fire where 87 people were killed. And you get there in the morning and the bosses say, go home, get some rest because you come back and you'll deal with this later on in the afternoon. I, number one, can't fathom what that's like to know bad things are heading your way because in my career, the only time we knew ahead of time something could be bad is doing a raid. Uh, everything else happened so fast, you didn't have time to really get fearful or react to it until afterwards. And yeah, I cried too, Mark. You're not alone there. Uh, and some of the images stay with me even at my ripe old age. But I can't picture what it was like for you and your squad mates to say, this is what we're going into. 
and this could be literally hell on earth. And that's what it was. It was absolutely that. And uh, like I said, I, I have nightmares to this day, uh, I, I, night sweats, whatever you call it. And uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, you just, it, it, it just takes your breath away when you think back and you and you realize, how did you get through it? You know, how did I get through it? I mean, I barely got through it. And uh, my my folks, they saw me on a, a, I guess I walked past a live feed on national news that night with my partner. And uh, they saw me on TV that night for Chicago. They were watching and they called me the next day to see how I was doing. And, you know, you want to protect your folks because they're worried enough that you're a cop in Vegas and, I, I told them that uh, I was doing fine. You know, I lied to them on the phone because I, I didn't want them worrying any more than they're worrying already. And they saw what I was going through. And uh, it was it was quite a traumatic deal and uh, a night that I'll never forget. And, uh, you know, some of the images that you, you see, like I said earlier, you can't unsee. And uh, I'll never forget that. And, uh, you know, aside from other calls you go on when you're a first responder, you know, shootings and stabbings and, and all the other that you have to deal with in the, in the, uh, the, the, the hor- horrific things that human beings do to one another that you have to witness. And this was an accidental situation, but just overload of dead bodies and, and uh, trauma that they faced before they died. And you know what was going through their minds, and you know how they were trying to get to safety, and they just didn't make it. And uh, it was an emotional deal and uh, something that you know I'll never forget. Right, and I I know that things have changed since then. A lot of regulations have changed, but I'll be honest with you. After this conversation, staying in a hotel, I will think differently about it. And here's another thing: How often have people like me been in a building at work or wherever it might be, and a fire alarm goes off? You go, oh, it's probably just a you know routine test. Oh, it's a malfunction. Nothing to worry about. And then. Turns out it's not a malfunction. It's not a routine test. It's the worst case scenario, and you're 20 floors up. They really, yeah. They, and I don't. You don't need to reply to this because it's upsetting. These people were trapped. They had nowhere to go. It's, yeah, they were, and uh, there were a few jumpers too. And uh, uh, you know, they 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 couldn't they couldn't breathe, and they took they took the way out. Uh, they just ended up jumping off the balconies to their death, and. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know, you could have been disoriented. You, you can't breathe. You're sucking for air and, and you know, you're, you're going down and, uh, you know, you fall over the railing or what have you. And it's, it's one of those things, but, uh, yeah, that there were a few of those and, uh, just other people that, like I said, that, that were really sucking for air and, and it, the air was, it, it was thinner the higher up you got, obviously, but it was, uh, it was really, thick uh you know throughout that whole building and uh that's the toxins that kill the people you know which is the glue and the rugs and the in the right. paint and all that stuff that burns is what is what you become over overcome with the toxins is what kills you so 87 souls passed that day my concern obviously for them and their families you can't undo that you can't make that right but I also have a great deal of concern for all the first responders, including you and, and your teammates and squad mates that worked that day. How are they all doing and how are you doing? 
Well, like I said, it, you know, it, it affected me uh, the closer to the, to the situation. Obviously, it, it's gotten better like time heals all wounds, you know, that, that saying. And I, I believe that. But uh, like I said, there's an anniversary date that comes up every year. And uh, it compelled me to write the story. And, and I actually wrote that rough draft of that story 10 years after the fact because I was having some difficulty uh you know waking up in the middle of the night and uh you know my wife put her arm around me and say what's the matter and i would i would flash back to the to the faces of these people or or muzzle flash in the night or or a guy coming at, or a lady coming at me with a knife or or what have you whatever the things that that cops go through what they have to deal with and so the so the bottom line is you know as time has gone by I, I think of it less and less, but around November, I think of it again in that kind of, uh, in, in a nice way, because I, I'm allowed to think back and what I was getting to when I, when I wrote the story, I felt better because it was almost therapeutic. It allowed me to vent about my emotions, about what I saw and what I felt. And I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed or not afraid to tell somebody that I cried on the job. You know, I mean, uh, you could be a macho man, you could be a macho cop, but some of the things that you, that you witness, some of the carnage and some of the that we put up with and we have to see, you can't unsee. And, right. and those things, you know, guys with their heads blown off or, or uh, you know, domestic disturbances when people try and knife you or, or what have you, or, or muzzle flash in the middle of the night when it's not your gun. You know, those are things that you never forget, you know, for the rest of your life. You, you remember that. And uh, that's kind of what it is about law enforcement, you know, and you can't unsee it. And it's one of those things where you just wish you could. You wish you could wave a magic wand and put it out of your mind, but you just can't do it. And here and we that's are. That's it takes. We are survivors of this. Uh, I say we, not just you and me, but so many people have had a show. And I personally don't think anymore about, you know, why me and why not them and all that. It it's just is what it is. And like many people, I have my emotional scars and my physical scars as well. I'm sure you do too. Uh, and you've done a great job telling it. You said about 10 years after the fire, you decided to write a book. And the book is called Metro Sin City Chronicles. Do a search on uh, Google for the book or Mark Russin Books. Uh, it's R-U-S-I-N. Or just go to Amazon.com. Uh, tell us about this book because it's the first of two you wrote. It is. It's actually the second book I wrote, um, and uh, I started it uh, when the MGM happened, obviously, 10 years after the fact. That was my first chapter of the book, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to see if I had any potential as a writer, because I always enjoyed writing poetry when I was a kid and, and writing stories and stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, you, you dictate, uh, we dictated our police reports, and then they were transcribed, and then we could get a copy of it. I saved a lot of copies from different police calls I had gone on with the thought of maybe someday chronicling them and putting them together in a book like I did. But the MGM Grant story uh, was on my mind for 10 years. So in 1990, I wrote the story in a rough draft form, and I showed it to my wife, and I showed it to some family members, and they all got the same emotion. You know, they they cried when they read the, 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 the story, and it was only like five pages long. It was a short story. And uh, so I thought I had something. And well, then at the 20th anniversary in 2000, I, I floated it to Oprah Winfrey and uh, a few other, you know, I was going to do that. 
And I got busy and I didn't do it. And then on the 25th anniversary, I finally did get it to uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal. And they called me up and said they wanted to do a big spread on the 25th anniversary. And they, they started with that. And then it, it caught on. And then that, that article, like I said, is in Wikipedia under the MGM Grand Hotel Fire. If you scroll down, uh, you'll see my name. And then I think it says Officer Recalls Eerie Scene or something like that. I'm so glad and, you uh, did so- write the book. And I'm really glad you came on the show to tell us about it. As a matter of fact, we're going to have you back again in the future because there's more stories to tell and more books. Mark, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, John. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? Well, we're all busy, but there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. So you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement, our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast, be sure to share it on your social media. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.